Hello, welcome to today's episode with me, Patrick Scally, your host as always. I'm very excited for today's show because I'm getting to have a conversation with someone who really knows a lot about Hackney Wick and Fish Island, East London broadly, uh, a very intelligent chap and someone who's worked in youth services for an incredibly long time. And, you know, if you walk around this area and you talk to people about how to engage young people, projects which speak to young people, this man is someone who everyone will say is certainly a voice that you need to go and have a conversation with, learn from and engage with. He works for Hackney Quest, who's an incredible company. He's a youth and community worker there. We've worked together on projects over the years and he's been instrumental in a lot of the research work that's gone down uh, in the area to try to better understand how young people see Hackney Wick and Fish Island, some of the disparities uh, in the way that people see opportunity uh, over the years and actions that could be done to try to progress uh, inequity um, in the area and try to create a fairer Hackneywick and Fish Island. We touch on a lot of things in this episode, but I think from my perspective, you know, the, the importance of focusing on young people uh, in the context of Hackneywick and Fish Island's creative and cultural industries ecosystem is vital. Those voices are the voices which create the most exciting, innovative, forward-looking product. And this is the kind of thing where we've got so much talent in in the area directly and in neighbouring areas in Hackney and Tower Hamlets, but the opportunities available in the area don't always seem to naturally proliferate out to those people. And that requires a deep dive. So thankfully, I've got Luke, who's, as I say, an incredibly, incredibly intelligent chap, and he's going to give us some incredible insights on how we can better engage young people in the creative and cultural ecosystem in Hackney Wick. Luke, thank you for making the time to come and chat with us. No worries. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Um, We've known each other for a little while. For time. For time. Um, to me, you're someone who's like very well regarded in this area through your uh, your career work uh, with Hatton Crest. And also, I think as a, like a person of the area who has committed a lot of your energy and time uh, uh, to really notable things, which I think, you know, the area could do better on. Um, and I think that's going to be the central part of our conversation, I guess, is yep. trying, to, trying to look at the area. Um, but as you've said many times before, you know, you're not Hackney Wick or Hackney solely exclusive in your work. You do a lot of work about regarding the, the wider London area. So our conversation today, I guess, will be really about community youth work um, in the context of Hackney Wick, Fish Island and Greater London. I guess before we sort of get into the minutiae of that, I mean, a little bit of background about yourself. You're, you, you know, you're a London guy mm-hmm. through and through, right? Hackney through and through. Hackney, not just London. Born do, you, in, do you say Hackney over London? If yeah, 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 definitely, okay. yeah. I'm not um, from here, so I don't know how this works. Oh, it's very important. And uh, Homerton and slash Hackney Wick over any other bit of Hackney. Double all click. That, all, all that, like Stamford Hills, St. Newton and Dalston. Nah, nah, nah. Apologies for anyone from the area who's listening. Half apologies from me. <laughs> um, yeah, born in Homerton Hospital, 1991, uh, and then lived just off Kenworthy Road, so... Now, now I know a bit about the mapping of the local authority wards. I know that it was slap bang in the middle of Hackney Wick Ward. But growing up, and this is maybe a point of vague general interest rather than just kind of personal anecdote, 
I had no idea which part of Hackney I lived in. As in, I thought it was Homerton, maybe Hackneywick. Didn't really know I was closest to Homerton Station. But I think there's a lot of bits of Hackneywick specifically, which is within the ward of Hackneywick. But if it's to the west of the A12, people don't really see themselves as Hackneywick. And I think that is a, I'm kind of diving into very specific Hackneywick chat. But, um, to the east and west of the A12 feels completely different. And I was to the west of the A12. And it's only in recent years since I've started working on Hackneywick as an area that I've more come to this side of the A12. Um, and so, yeah, I, I grew up, I, th I think I thought of it as Homerton growing up. Um, so, yeah, very much a, a, a Hackney boy. And was it always, you know, when you were younger, were you interested in, you know, were you an area person? Were you like a neighbourhood person? Did you did you have those connections? And was your ability to connect with people and forge relationships something that you had from from early on, or is it something that developed through your kind of teenage years and I think um, adult life? I think I did a lot less of it than, especially my mum. My my dad would not mind me saying that he's a fairly antisocial person. Um, whereas my mum's the opposite. Uh, so she kind of like knew a lot of people, got involved in a lot of community projects, especially through church. Um, and so I like always kind of saw her doing that. And she was a nurse at Homerton Hospital for a couple of decades, if not a bit more, um, and was heavily involved in kind of like charity fundraising, like bits and bobs around the hospital as well. Um, and so, yeah, I saw, I saw that from my mum. And then I always was aware, like thinking back to my primary years, like we lived in a little terraced house on Bushbury Road. Um, and I was always, well, from a relatively early age, I was really conscious that like some of my mates lived in, not many of them, but some of them lived in bigger houses than we lived in, like around Victoria Park. But most of them lived in like small little flats that, you know, at the age of 10 or 11, you're beginning to notice like, oh, it seems a bit overcrowded here. Um, compared to my situation or that other friend I've got. So I was very aware of a lot of inequality and then just aware of a lot of issues that were occurring in the area. Um, people's immigration status, um, people uh, just struggling with kind of housing issues or, or poverty in different kinds of ways. Um, so I always, I always saw those issues. Um, and then I went secondary school out of, out of borough, which quite a lot of people did of my generation. Um, if you talk to people between maybe like late twenties and mid to late thirties, a lot of people talk about going to school out of borough right. because back then the schools had a bad reputation, which to an extent was fair to an extent wasn't. And we might, we might talk more about, I guess, educational, um, challenges in the area. Anyway. Yeah. Went to school at Hackney, but spent quite a, quite a lot of time back in Hackney. And then I think it was especially at uni, that I got most frustrated thinking back to the kind of preventable difficulties and injustices that people were experiencing like back home in Hackney. Because essentially at uni, I met a lot of people who were just like ludicrously privileged, um, but no more, no more intelligent, no more talented than the young people I grew up with. And it's like, it was like enormously tangible, palpable to see like people who yeah, had immense, basically family wealth that they'd grown up with. And then thinking back to the situations affecting a lot of, um, you know, 
mates of mine and families around me in Hackney. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a, I don't know, cho choose whatever word you want to use to describe it. It's, it's, it's hideous. It's, the, it's a disgrace. It's a joke. Like the amount of wealth and resource in this country should mean that everyone in all parts of the country, including in Hackney, should be able to live with the basic fundamentals of what you need for life. But 46%, I think it is, of children in Hackney are growing up in poverty after housing costs. Um, and I didn't know that stat growing up or from a young age, but I was aware of that general issue and pretty frustrated and angry about it from a young age. Um, again, another thing I guess we might get on get onto, especially when then things like the Olympics happen and there's a lot of promises made. There's a, there's a kind of expression from policymakers at the top about an awareness of that issue. Um, and then a lot of, a lot of promise, a lot of chat. And then, yeah, I'm sure we may get on to talk about the extent to which things like that have been materialized. Absolutely. And when you think about those narratives that you grew up around, uh, in that area, going to university, witnessing young people who had, as you say, privilege, but maybe no less, no less, uh, human, uh, capital knowledge, etc. How does that kind of pull through to the work that you do now? Hanny Quest and academic work. Do you do you bring all that? Did that did that kind of naturally bring that line of work forward? And in terms of for people who don't know what Hackney Quest do, yeah, yeah, what's the what's the kind of core objective of the of the organisation? Yeah, so I think because of all of that context that I explained from a very young age, is in from from when I was at uni and I was first thinking about what I wanted to do afterwards. I always knew I wanted to work back in Hackney and work with young people. Um, also for the more kind of um, I guess just generic reason that I really liked working with young people um, really liked interacting with young people and while I was at uni I did bits of work that um, was supporting younger people um, and so yeah I, I always wanted to come back to Hackney um, so quite early on I started a little mentoring project in a secondary school in Hackney with a mate of mine who had also grown up in Hackney also gone to the same uni um, and then it was through that basically that I first got connected with Hackney Quest back in 2015. And then from 2016, I was working at Hackney Quest. Um, so Hackney Quest is a long running uh, independent youth charity. Been going since 1988, three years longer than I've been going. Um, and the, the kind of focus of it has always been um, supporting young people um, to develop personally, to, to fulfill their potential. Um, I think I'm right in saying it was started by a couple of ex-cops and ex-social workers. And I think it started with the idea of um, kind of supporting groups of young people who'd been getting in trouble or struggling in different kinds of ways, especially by taking them on different kinds of trips and activities out of London. Mm -hmm. I think that's where the quest bit comes from. Got you. Um, but then since then, it's grown substantially in the remit. So runs kind of youth club evening activities every every weekday evening, at least one. Um, work with young people between the age of 8 to 18, got about 200, 300 young people kind of on our membership list at any one point. Um, recently expanded the kind of employability support that we do for over 18s. Um, and then we do, yeah, still a lot of trips and residentials. Um, we do free meals for anyone who wants to come a couple of times a week, and that's especially the elderly community who tend to come to those. Right. Um, and then we do more kind of targeted support as well so all, all that stuff i've just mentioned is largely on a group basis but then myself and others also and um, work 
fairly intensively with individual young people and their families when they're going through substantial difficulties. Often that's related to education, um, sometimes housing, sometimes mental health, sometimes a range of different things. Um, but yeah, my, my focus, particularly for the one-to-one -one part of my work, is often most centred around educational problems. And do you find the, the kind of the major successes for, for questing yourself often come through those you know, one-to-ones, those direct interventions? Is it something that requires that element of personality or personal touch? I think uh, it, it entirely depends on the young person and what they need. So right. a lot of young people benefit most from the relationships that they form with their peers at Hackney Quest. They make brilliant friendships which help them. Right. And we're kind of there roughly in the background to facilitate it. But ultimately, they make great friendships and those friendships enrich their lives. Um, in other cases, though, yeah, it's the, more, it's the more intensive support that makes a big difference, especially like acute points of crisis, like risk of, risk of being expelled from school or going through a, a kind of expulsion process in school that we're able to support them through um, can make a big difference. But I also think like success or impact is a ludicrously complex, difficult thing to think about for an organisation like Hackney Quest. And I think there's a lot of pressure in the sector to essentially um, bastardize your own work in order to assert a very simplistic notion of the difference that you make and kind of attribute to yourself or your organization some kind of transformative change in young, in young people, which is often down to them more than anyone else. And if I think about, you know, like 12 inverted commas, like the success stories of young people that I've worked with, like thinking of young people I've worked with for multiple years. And I think, you know, I, I kind of timeline the different things in their lives, including like my involvement or different things that I've done to kind of support them. Yeah, I can have some vague notion that hopefully I've made a difference or some of the stuff that I've done has helped them to make that positive transformation. But there's a load of other stuff that they've done or their family's done, like relationships, other things that have happened in their lives, which I know has made a big positive difference as well. Right. Um, so it's very modest of you. I think a fair point though. I think it's not yeah, as simple as a one-to-one -one direct outcome, yeah, like ten percent improvement or something. Yeah, it's yeah, and, and and that's partly. Um, so we obviously we do a lot to kind of evaluate our work, improve our work. I'm not suggesting that we don't, but I guess the, this point about avoid avoiding like heavily simplistic kind of causal attribution, essentially saying you know we did X and then young person has now done. Yeah, why and therefore it's all us like it's partly obviously with my like more academic hat on that i think that all of that is nonsense and there's also a more political point which is that essentially the kind of work that i do and a hat request does used to be seen as inherently valuable like providing young people with recreational activities supporting young people through difficulties in their lives back in the day was better funded better recognized better supported right. and so there was less pressure to constantly be given an inside leg measurement for every young person in order to demonstrate some impact that you might be having in right. again in inverted commas so there's there's a political thing there as well that essentially um there's pressure to measure things economistically in a way that i think is inappropriate and not right. not necessarily helpful and indicative of a situation in which you have to kind of measure the cost of everything and the value of nothing or, or the measures that you use to value things are ludicrously narrow. Oh, yeah, and yeah, we, there's lots of reasons for that. And, and it's, it's not all bad. There's a lot that we could go into with that. But yeah. um, the, I, think, sorry, go I was just going to say, 
the point is no organization working with young people should over claim responsibility for what young people go on to do because at worst you're massively insulting young people by suggesting like they're nothing without you My desire for these conversations and structuring it a bit like a design meeting or a workshop of that form is to try and uncover some more information like that, which can hopefully um, lead us towards some some kind of broader thinking. And I guess get those kind of statements out there more wider, more widely. Like the ones with swear words in. Like the ones with swear words yeah. in, and some big words and some simple words, but some truths, I guess. And and you know, and what I'm all about: big words, small words, swear words. That's the slogan. Um, and if we think about, you know, okay, so again, very complex issue. So, so many elements to this that we can go into. If we think about it as like a how might we question, yeah. so like the kind of thing we're trying to change, you know, if we think about more opportunities for more people, this inclusive economy agenda, are there kind of, is there like a how might we in your mind or like, is there anything that you think is like, you know, what are the fundamental things that you think need to change? Like how might we make something better? What would it be? I think... Um I'm going to sound like a knob now, but um, I've written a book with a colleague and one of the key ideas in it is about the flourishing of young people. And I think I I'd like to talk very broadly. So I think we should right. go for a big, broad question, like how do we best support the flourishing of young people in Hackney? Perfect. Because there's a number of different angles that we can kind of approach that from. And there's a number of, like, loaded for different things that Hackney Quest does and I guess I do individually that is seeking to um contribute towards answers to that question in different ways perfect so how might we support flourishing of young people in Hackney as the overall yeah I like right. it yeah perfect so if we think about that in terms of like digging into the 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 question in, in, in a deeper way in your mind what's the main issue that's causing young people to not flourish in Hackney. When you think about, you talked briefly there about the Olympics, um, all the opportunity that's come about over the past 10 years, yeah. um, but some inherent asymmetries on how those opportunities are being accessed. Yeah. Um, if we talk about prosperity and, and yeah. you know, people's lives being better. Yeah. You know, as you said, you witnessed growing up, um, you know, disconnect there between certain people that had different housing situations to yep. you. Yep. Um, uh, and you. I'm sure you see those things echo through through now. Yep. And I'm sure you also see lots of people who have accessed some of the opportunities yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, on a, on a case-by-case basis. But, of course, we're trying to, as you say, keep it broad. So yep. what do you think is the main issue, which is meaning that flow of opportunity or those that flourishing is not happening as, uh, as, as a, a multiplier that we yeah. would like to see. Well, you've been very mean there because obviously I talked about flourishing in order to be able to, to not say what the main one. I was obviously hedging. Uh, so I'm going to like rattle off a long list. Sure. And then try and guide you towards the ones I want to talk about. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> housing is massive, as you mentioned. Like housing is a... Is, is a fundamental need a fundamental necessity of life and for far far too many people in in the country and in hackney their housing situation is either very um kind of tenuous and and 
temporary, which causes massive anxiety in parents and that reverberates around households or it's overcrowded or the condition is not good or there's unreasonable landlords or a mixture of all those things. And a, a, a large proportion of Hackney's children are growing up affected by one or more of those things. Um, jobs, like you mentioned, is, is one thing for opportunities to exist. It's another thing for there to not be discrimination in who gets those jobs. And it's another thing for they, them to be designed in such a way that they're appealing and accessible and kind of achievable for young people. Um, and it's one of those things where because of rates of financial difficulty, because of a, a whole range of different factors, there's massive need for a, a whole range of different opportunities for young people. And so even if there is a decent supply, it's not meeting the need, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, and then all the kinds of inequalities that I mentioned, and, and especially racism, um, racism, racism in the education system, in obviously in the immigration system, in housing, in welfare, um, and in policing. Um, and I think one of the key things that I talk to people a lot about is that Hackney has gone through a lot of change since the 90s, like since when I was growing up here. Um, and there's all different views bouncing around about whether that change is good or bad or what's causing it, yada, yada. Um, and, and those conversations are important. But one of the things I always try and emphasize is the continuity, because the fundamental issues affecting young people growing up in my generation are not too different now is is the inequality is the housing is the opportunities is poverty it's racism it's it's either inadequate or kind of inappropriate forms of welfare support social support and so on um and so i think there can be a bit of a race not a race sorry there can be a bit of a exaggeration of hackney is this completely transformed place for better or ill and i think actually the fundamental continuities relate to the nature of hackney in the context of London and Britain's inequality and the nature of its political economy. Um, and then on the, on the kind of flip side, I think there's a lot of positive things, obviously, um, taking a more kind of strength-based view. There's a lot of wonderful things about Hackney. Um, it's, it's neighborliness, the community spirit, um, how multicultural it is, how much goes on to celebrate different kinds of cultures. Um, and the kind of social infrastructure that we have, again, long word basically means like places that people like to go and to use, like the parks that we've got. But the other passion of mine that I think, I think you know about already, Patrick, is um, cages, AKA multi-use games areas is the kind of local authority bureaucratic Very different ways of framing um, that. Some people it? call it ball court, it, it depends. Um, but we've got a lot of them in Hackney and I've done quite a lot of research into them. Um, and I've done quite a lot of more general conversations with young people about what they love in their area and cages often come up. And I think they're hugely important for addressing a whole range of different things that local authorities are concerned about, like childhood obesity, like contextual safeguarding, community safety, early intervention, active lifestyles, 15 minute neighborhoods, all, all of these different things, um, which are too often written about nicely in strategy documents, but don't hit the ground. And I think places like cages, which are doorstep neighborhood facilities that are open to all, which might be quite rough and ready, which might not meet the highest of health and safety standards at all times, but they're there. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them are well used and have massive potential. So that's one, one more specific kind of more community development thing that I'm involved in um, through Hackney Quest is working with other organizations, sports organizations, the council and others um, to maximize the benefits that um, cages bring to local young people so uh, 
in terms of young people's flourishing, there are things that undermine it. There are things that cause pain and pressure and powerlessness on young people and families. And then there are, there are good things that hugely benefit young people already, but that I think could be further kind of accentuated, like further um, boosted up essentially to meet more young people's needs or to, or to benefit them more. Mm. And I think it's, from my experience anyway, I, I didn't grow up in London. So I think cages is a, is a good example of something that, you know, I grew up in a really small town in Lincolnshire. Um, there, were, there was a youth centre uh, that did have a cage connected to it, so to speak. But it wasn't some, just by nature of density, there just wasn't a proliferation of that. Yeah. So our version would just be like a field or yeah, something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, that's not a, like a governed thing, right? No one set that field up for you to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you didn't attach like an identity yeah, or, yeah. but your experiences were formed or you, you were formed as a person in those spaces, right? Yeah. Outside of uh, institutions like education yeah, yeah, yeah. or the home. Um, and you formed your values and yep. your norms and you understood the world through those spaces. Yeah, yeah. And when you think about that notion of, you know, someone who, you know, maybe I negatively look upon those cages yeah, yeah. based on like a not real lived experience yeah, of yeah. what they can be used for. But when you talked about it there, I was like, oh, it's the same thing. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just what's available. Yeah. It's this, yeah, it's this, like you say, it's the spaces through which people meet one another, like engage with with peers socially and like intergenerationally like you walk past a cage sometimes and there's like a parent with a few kids and then like a, a an adult like i've seen adults like learning to ride a bike in a cage and then you got teenagers playing football whatever and they're all kind of mixing together mm. um and like you say you can view it through a kind of patronizing deficit lens like oh isn't it sad they haven't got access right. to a garden they haven't got they're not in green space they're they're on that concrete cage, isn't it sad? Um, and obviously everyone should have access to green space. Gardens should be more um, equally distributed among people, blah, blah, blah. I'm not disagreeing with that, but th those cage spaces precisely because they're accessible, so accessible to everyone because they're kind of common spaces can at best, they can, they can be terrible places where bad stuff happens, but at best they're hugely valuable because like you say, they're spaces in which young people can form their identities kind of in collision with one another mm. um and that that's valuable when when it is just kind of free play like using them as kind of playgrounds for for playing sport or or for whatever they want to do or it's valuable when there's kind of really good grassroots community organizations de delivering good provision on cages right um so there's organizations like wickers charity like mentoring lab like access to sport like arsenal in the community who do great work in these spaces and talking to them, you hear the value, the specific value of a cage. They're not a youth club. They, you know, you, yeah, they're more like accessible a... than that. But it's not just like a park. Right. And there's there's a kind of paradox in that it's a cage, it's encaged, and yet the, the like the freedom is immense. You, you, there's nowhere else in the world that you can hoof a ball with as much exuberance as within a cage. Um, so that that's 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 part of its value mm. um but the you know the predominant lens the predominant standpoint of poli policy makers is a very white middle class kind of view right less so in hackney like hackney um policy making thankfully is much more representative and diverse than in a lot of places but but still places like cages more generally are not sufficiently even attended to like yeah even the problems, the issues on them aren't thought about deeply enough because they're just seen as like blocks of concrete. Right. Um, but there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot that can be 
um, done. They're kind of a canvas for, for a lot of um, hugely beneficial things. And canvas, I mean, like useful word to, to push it into what I work on. And, uh, you know, I studied music technology, uh, had a career as a creative person. Um, I guess I'm one of the statistics that proves the lack of diversity in the creative field, like opportunities were available to me differently to others. I, I mean, the, I mean, class is, I mean, the disparities in the, in, in regards to class in terms of creative occupations is palpable. I mean, I think it's about 16% of those in creative occupations are from working class backgrounds, um, as opposed to say 29% in all other occupations. Um, you know, when we think about my perspective of a creative enterprise zone, the area being a creative economy, yeah, um, yeah. you know, the diversity of talent in the area is, is is notable. But I think, you know, when we talk about that, I'd love to hear your perspective on, from, maybe from a societal and a cultural and yeah, an economic yeah. perspective, is there something, you know, when we talk about the education system or the home, you know, is it yeah. about a knowledge gap about there being an opportunity for a creative occupation being a good job for life, whether it's a yeah. machinist in, in, in fashion or yeah, yeah. You know, it could be a, a lighting designer for, or, or, or you know, working in um, audio technology or film, you know, are those kind of things uh, understood yeah. uh, as far as you experience it through your life in those communities? And yeah. is, is there a gap in the school system? Is it, yeah, yeah. is it mentors? Is it, as you say, is there fundamental racism in yeah. these industries that, don't allow those opportunities, even though everyone can pay lip service. Do you, yeah, yeah, where yeah. do you see the kind of biggest pinch point if you had to pick one? Well, I think it's, yeah, I think it's all of those things. I think definitely like the education system is getting narrowed. Um, and certainly whenever there's funding cuts, it tends to seem to be arts and creative industry, creative subjects, sorry, mm -hmm. that get squeezed. So I think that's massive because the less exposure young people have to those things through a universal institution like school, the more it's going to be a kind of point of privileged access. Like if you've got a certain kind of family background, you'll get private music lessons or you'll go to different, right. you'll be exposed to all kinds of different things, even if you get none of it within school. Whereas for those who have less privilege, that's not going to be the case. It's the kind of getting a little bit sociological, it's the kind of social capital and cultural capital thing, as in like a lot of jobs in the creative industry, and I'm no expert, but from what I've seen, it's an industry like many others where it's your kind of personal connections, your yeah, kind of social connections that helps you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also your kind of cultural capital, like your ability to kind of navigate those spaces comfortably. And there, there's creative brilliance in most of the young people I work with creative in, in a, in a broad kind of way. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot, I don't know. There's a lot of like smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of pretension. There's a lot of BS basically in some creative industries yeah, yeah. that that causes like a massive sense of alienation and it's really hard to describe and i'm not sure this is a kind of pinch point because it's quite intangible and difficult but like even today i'm 31 years old like i'm a dad like i'm an old man i should be mature and if i work if i walk into a space that has a certain kind of aesthetic especially like a kind of coffee shop whatever yeah there's a part of me which is like the angry teenager from hackney it's like what the like, right. i'm gonna I, I don't want to swear too much we like, can always bleep it mate. what, Phil, what let what, it loose like, what on what on earth is this space like right. who is this for yeah who is this for i don't know the people why is this, this here is for, right? look at that price board that is crazy like what is going on and and i'm not for one moment suggesting that there's a 
massive amount of validity in that quite angry, instinctive feeling. I think, you know, you can interrogate the extent to which different kinds of prejudice are, are at play in, in that me having that feeling, whatever. But I think the point is, I, like, I'm not instinctively a creative person, I don't think. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be alienated <laughs> right, right. by a lot of kind of creative industry things. And I think I'm not alone in that. Um, and I think, I think even down to the aesthetics of certain spaces, I think, I think you can walk into a space and be like, this feels strange. This feels pretentious. This feels whatever. And, and immediately that's classed and racialized yeah, because right. like, I'm not going to name particular spaces, but I had an interesting conversation with one young person about one space um, in, in this area, or? in this area. Yeah. Okay. And I said to him like, well, oh, what do you think about it? Um, and he was like, oh, do you, like, can I be honest? And I was like, yeah, yeah, like, you know, it's not my space. Like, say what you want to do. And he just said, white people. And mm. it's interesting because I think that is representative of the demographic that uses the space partly. But I think it's also a, a, a like more of an aesthetic thing. Feeling, yeah. Yeah, and I think an opportunity was missed there to design that space and design a lot of spaces like with young people so that they feel accessible, warm, friendly, like one of the one of the f things that's noticeable about Hackney Quest is you walk in, and I don't think anyone could be intimidated by it in any way. Right. Yeah. Because it looks comfy. It's a little bit like it's not the most well maintained. It doesn't look <laughs> clinical. It looks like a kind of f friendly space. And you know, obviously, I've got loads of positive associations with it, so that's going to be yeah, how yeah, I feel. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of spaces that can feel alienating for all kinds of different reasons, including aesthetics. And I think in the creative industry, that's a big problem. And I think there should be a lot more emphasis potentially on, all right, we've got this new space. It may have X kind of opportunity for local people. Let's get them in and work with them to design the space. So let's pay them to advise us on the interior, like on the interior yeah. design. Let's get in some local young people who are doing that kind of stuff. Um, down to the furnishings and all that kind of stuff. Because I mean, as, a, as a more general thing, it's notable, the amount of money that people get paid to be like consultants on things or to help with the yeah. design of things. And so often I think, even things that are meant for like local young people or whatever, you, you get in someone with like, who chats some good chat about service design and they'll hoover up some multi thousand pound contract to work with the council on it. And I just think, get, get in a group of young people, and this is done in some places, there's a really good organisation called Young Advisors. They're in Southwark, they're in Lambeth, they're in Wolfham Forest, they're in a few other areas. Young people recruited from a, a range of different places, including like youth offending teams, trained up and paid to be consultants about everything that goes on in, in the council. Um, Shout out to them. Yeah, they're doing good stuff. And and Hackney obviously had Young Futures Commission um, and... I know the the young person, the young man, very well, who's now kind of a part of the the team leading the the Young Futures Commission recommendations kind of realisation. So a lot's happening in Hackney as well. Yeah. I think there's something specific there, not just for local authorities, but for every organisation. If you're wanting to open up opportunities for a particular group, just it's like every decision you make, just think, could, could I involve my kind of target group, for yeah. want of a better phrase, could I involve them directly in helping me make this decision? And then obviously, if you do so, you've got to make sure that you suitably reward the people for that contribution. Don't be doing tokenistic exploitation, like pay young people, <laughs> like get them in, get them, get them on the payroll. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think to play the counterfactual on that, which, you know, I don't think is anyone's, I hope it's no one's true opinion of, of how they operate. But 
the counterfactual being that if you're a person who delivers space like this and there is a fundamental lack of those sort of people, yeah. uh, different classes, different backgrounds, uh, ethnicities, etc., in that industry, you know, and this isn't anyone's view, I hope, certainly isn't mine, why would they design spaces for people that don't occupy those spaces? So it's like the chicken and the egg. Yeah, yeah. It's not the answer, and I don't think it's anyone's thought process, yeah, but you yeah. can kind of see how if you don't solve the from first principles, if you don't solve yeah, the underlying yeah. thing, then yeah. the stream of people coming through are the kind of people who don't mind paying four pounds yeah. for a flat white I've, and like the made.com sofa shelter. They just went under, didn't they? Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, you can see how those things naturally proliferate because they're essentially a business trying to sell space and who takes the space is the kind of people that like that stuff. I so think, even with good intention, they fall short. I think, yeah, this it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the phrase good intention is important because... With good intentions, there's a lot of mistakes that can be made, obviously, and a lot of it can be kind of conscience-solving rather than thinking consequentially. I think there's a big problem in general. People are more concerned about their own conscience than right. the consequences. The moral the, virtue signaling versus... Yeah, let's not, oh, bloody hell, let's not get into all that stuff too much. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, we like, you know, conscience is a helpful thing, but we also need to think consequentially about what is actually going to happen as a result of our actions rather than making you feel yeah. fuzzy. Um so there's problems with good intentions, but it's really interesting and notable to me, this split between people who do different kinds of stuff in Hackney that are ostensibly for the community, or could be for the community, who have a, a bit of awareness, just some superficial awareness of the kind of history of the area, and so recognise the massive inequalities that are here, and that's the kind of context for their thinking, and they want to do good stuff within the context of being aware of those bigger things. And then people... And then people who are kind of, I don't know, just either have a hugely like naive, rosy-eyed view of it or just think like Hackney should be grateful for having them in it. And it's notable, again, I'm not going to mention any names. I'm only, I'm only going to mention one positively, but in terms of the Olympic regeneration and stuff, people from the, v I've chatted to people from the VNA a lot. And like very first yeah, time I met someone I from agree. the VNA, they were like, we're potentially going to exacerbate gentrification in this area. There's massive economic, cultural, political inequalities that have affected East of London for centuries. And we're conscious that there's a massive risk that we're kind of culture washing a hugely unjust situation in East London. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And and so straight away you're like, all right, you kind of you got a bit of an awareness of what's going on here. Let's have that conversation. I agree. Whereas there's a lot of a lot of organizations kind of rock up and there's just there's just none of that. Um, and, and, you know, then you get utterly ludicrous things like, you know, the Madi Madison Square Garden sphere. Are you aware of this? I do. Yes. Like on every level, on every measure, like you, I mean, you don't have to be a Marxist to think that an enormous sphere, which is basically a constant advertising hoarding might not necessarily be the most wonderfully beneficial thing for East London, yeah. aside from all the other many, many issues with it. talk there about and before moving on to kind of like an empathy map style exercise in our thinking i would love you to briefly touch on because we've talked about uh individual spaces the red path oh yeah and yeah, the work yeah, yeah. around the whole area not feeling yeah, like yeah. Uh, the kind of place which represents people yeah, from yeah. the surrounding area or you know even within it in yeah, less, yeah. um uh economically sure 
areas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Speak to me a little bit about the importance of that project. Yeah. Um, you know what what it is for one, yeah, yeah. and then to that fundamental point of flourishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that? How does something like that support that flourishing? Yeah. So I'll do a brief bit of background, and whenever I describe this kind of story that I'm about to do. It all sounds very like intentional and like thought through and like one thing followed you another. Rationalized. It was, I mean, it was, I was, we were stumbling along and then, you know, we were able to hopefully do some good stuff. We did a big report that was, came out in 2018 called Hackney Wick for Young Eyes. Myself and two young people who are paid to work with me basically ran around chatting to a lot of young people, spoke to them about what they loved in the area, what they didn't like, what they wanted to change. Um, had a whole series of recommendations and a lot of stuff came out of that. Um, like, Again, I don't want to over-attribute a lot of other people involved, um, and it's to the council's massive credit. They they created an entirely new multi-use games area in Hackney Wick. That was our, our kind of challenge in the report, like contributed to that. Young Hackney um, East way. Yeah, but we also um, we did some stuff ourselves. So we worked with Build Up, a youth construction specialist charity. Um, we got together a team of young people to d- design and build a new public space on the corner of Wick Road and Morning Lane, um, which is still there. And it's got a bit of pigeon poo on it. But other than that, it's doing well. Um, so it was all about, are young people informed about what's happening? Are they benefiting from the changes? Um, and are they directly involved in them? It was one of the big things to come out of the report, among among many others. Um, and so that that obviously fed into the, the build-up project. That fed into our recommendations to kind of decision makers. So the, the Eastway um, multi-use games area that we've mentioned was very much like code, co-design with local young people. Um, and we did, we've, we've done other projects around employment, different things kind of focused on Hackney Wick. Um, and a couple of, one of the things we're doing now is, is the, the multi-use games area stuff. And there's hopefully going to be investment coming in from a large national organization that I probably shouldn't mention, which should hopefully benefit other, uh, cages in, in Hackney Wick specifically. But yeah, the other, the other one is Red Path. Red Path is a path that goes from Eastway to Mably. Um, and young people were mentioning in, in all the conversations about Hackney Wick, like young people were mentioning it kind of being dodgy or being unsafe, feeling unsafe or knowing that things have happened there. Um, and then other residents also kind of mentioning similar kinds of concerns. Um, and the more converse, conversations of this nature we had, the more that we realized that ultimately there were, there were at least, but mostly three issues with the path. One is like safety, perceptions of safety and like actual risk of harm basically um the other is like attractiveness like it's not it's not nice to to look at necessarily and the other one is just kind of functionality we've had a lot of conversations with ickberg school which is a specialist school on Kenworthy road and most of their students are wheelchair users and they really like they need to use that path because they can't really go elsewhere yeah and that um like the there's loads of issues with the path in terms of accessibility so we've been doing a lot more community engagement we put out a, a survey and we're working with a specialist architecture slash engineering um, slash urban planning organization called Space Black. Um, and they're writing up a detailed report about the path. But the hope is basically to work with local young people, other local residents to transform the path, to improve its safety, its attractiveness and its functionality. Mm-hmm. And to do so in a way to, to the point about like echoing the VNA's words, basically you could do that in a way that made it feel like this is for, using inverted commas categories here. This is for the uppies. This is for the trendies. This is for people who, um, you know, cy- cycle into Hackney Wick on a fixie bike, um, wearing skinny jeans, wh- whatever. All the, all the stereotypes you want to use, those stereotypes are bound because of the extent of inequality 
and the concern about who's all this stuff for. So I'm not legitimizing those stereotypes necessarily, but I am saying that something like the Red Path is hugely contentious potentially. If you if you just got in a load of like well-renowned white middle class artists to do some pretty patterns all down the pathway, that would have certain cultural connotations which would not be good. I'm very aware of that. So we want to work carefully with local residents, especially local young people. Use it again. I guess I'll use the word canvas, like to celebrate local young people. Like there might be different bits of art all the way down the path done by local young people or co-designed with young people. We're not entirely sure what we're gonna do, but we just know we want to like co-design everything with local young people and other local residents and hit those three marks of safety, attractiveness, and like functionality. Um, and hopefully it'll be a bit like the build-up project, like something that kind of lives on as a, as a kind of physical recognition of the extent to which you can hand power to local people, essentially. Yeah. Like you, you can not just kind of patronizingly consult with people and then do what you had in mind anyway and, again, pay a load of consultants, grands and grands and grands to kind of do the more detailed work. You can maximally involve local people and, and it's – a massive good fortune that we met space black i can't even remember how exactly it happened but they're completely brilliant they're like um that some of them are like um fairly young kind of new in their careers in those areas some some are more experienced but the space black are all about ensuring that spaces better um kind of recognize the voice of and improve life for marginalized communities because all of those industries obviously architecture engineering urban planning again dominated by white middle class people so there's a there's a thing there about who, whose vision whose imagination is it that gets materialized in the real world and very often that's old white men it's their ideas it's their notion it's their perspective that then is created in bricks and mortar in the world um and that's what space black are really trying to tackle um and so it, feel, it feels like hopefully a really good fruitful collaboration and hopefully red path will be made much much better in coming weeks months realistically years yeah but it's a long-term project so years makes sense and if people want to find out is there stuff online about red path uh i mean you can for anyone who doesn't know the area if you just search google red, search red path and it comes up there, yeah. is a, there will be a line on your search yeah, engine function i don't think you can do street view for it um but anyway yeah if you search up red path you'll, you'll see it um the survey is still there i think it is tinyearl.com forward slash hackney red path and we're just going to leave that live i think because we'll, we'll, even when we like publish a report or produce a report that will take a snapshot of the results up to that point, yeah. um, the survey also reflects some of the initial thinking that we've got and some of the pre-existing community engagement that we've got. So that's probably the best place to Correct. get an inkling into what's going on. And people can also leave their contact details on that to um, be involved in some way. Engage um, people. So, I mean, we've, I mean, we've talked, I think the, the way you would often work through it, I think we sort of naturally done it, which is great. And I think it... I mean, the, the breadth of the conversation shows the complexity behind this, which was what we wanted to uh, bake into the, the question in the first place, leaving it reasonably wide in its scope in order to, you know, uh, attribute many, many factors to this issue around flourishing um, and the lack of it uh, in the, on the broad strokes of it. Uh, if we think about, you know, what people, you know, beyond... You know, you have talked a lot about your experiences, others' experiences that you've experienced. Yeah. Um, but if we really do step out of our personal yeah. life and we think about the kind of things that 
on the ground, people, uh, young people, uh, people more generally, are feeling, which kind of uh, reduces their, you know, uh, feeling towards being able to flourish. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's there's a general malaise or uh, a sense of kind of pending doom in the United Kingdom generally. Yeah. I mean, as I say, I grew up in a very small town, uh, which has pretty much crumbled since I've. Yeah grown up in it. I thought you were going to say specifically since you left. No, no, no. I had never no recovered. Hand. It's never recovered. It was such a such an export, you know, they never got that <laughs> that, that surplus that I was generating for the, the cultural capital of that area. Um but you know I, I think that's kind of you know this wider point about hey, you know, things aren't things aren't getting better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um and when you if you know if you pick up a paper, you, you're gonna be presented slap bang with all the issues that are in the world. I mean, you you know, you're listening to your friends oftentimes talking about pretty, pretty difficult life situations pretty consistently, and how you say uh, 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 and behave uh, amongst all of that, it's hard to be uh, optimistic. You know, it's hard to be the kind of you know textbook person, which you know the the hero of the story. You know, mm-hmm. how do you be the hero in your story? In an area where you feel like you know maybe maybe in your you know your 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 small circle you know you, there's a lot of joy there there's a lot of love there's a lot yeah. of human things which aren't lost yeah. but there are a lot of factors way beyond your ability to affect and change yeah. which seem to be having an outweighed effect on your ability to flourish. I mean, when you think about those those people in this area, I mean you know a, a certain kind of person in this area. Of course, you can't talk about everyone. But someone who maybe isn't experiencing the kind of opportunity to flourish that others might. Yeah. What are the kind of things that they're kind of hearing and seeing around them, which inform their view on the area? Um, I was I wondered where you were going to end up there with the question. Um, I think I'll answer it in I, I can answer it in slightly abstract terms, but I think I I think I can make more concrete. Um, so again, this is this is. Um, Something, I guess, that relates to stuff that me and Keir wrote about in the book. So the book's called Against You Violence. So Is it out now? Yeah, it's out now. Okay, right. Please, Bristol, Bristol University Press. Please search that, everyone. Um, and it's partly specifically about the issue of violence, but it's more about contextualising that issue within wider uh, structural harms, inequalities, co- uh, sources of belittlement that affect young people across the country. Um, and one of the things that we talk about, which I think directly relates to your your question, is um, that part of all of this, or a significant kind of macro level driver of that malaise of, of the difficulty facing a lot of people, is that there's huge inequality in four different things, all of which begin with R, to make it easier to remember. Mm-hmm. Resources, recognition, risk, and state, in brackets, retribution. So very, very quickly, resources, obviously, massive wealth and income inequality. The Financial Times, that great bastion of left-wing thinking, recently did all this analysis and basically concluded UK and US are both actually quite poor societies that just happen to have a small number of ludicrously rich people. So on average, there's a lot of wealth in our countries yeah. and they average out as looking very wealthy, but that's because a tiny proportion have extreme wealth. That top and, yeah. yeah, and actually the poorest in the US or in the UK are no better off than the poorest in other nations, which might, we might assume are a lot poorer more generally. I think Slovenia is the, the example that they use. So resource inequality in this country is completely ludicrous, and that's closely tied to 
inequality of recognition, which political philosophers use as a term to refer to essentially anything that relates to feeling appreciated, feeling valued, or on the other side, stigma. And inequality of resources and recognition always coexist. You can't live in a hugely unequal society in terms of wealth without feeling inequalities in status, in, in stigma, in respect, ultimately. So there's a lot of people, I think, who feel both materially like they're struggling, but who also feel either directly or more intangibly a sense of feeling disrespected. And it's like a lack of spiritedness and yeah. self-esteem. And things like yeah. And the, the kind of, you know, the most palpable example of this would be people who've been discriminated against because of perhaps their ethnic heritage in ways that have affected their job opportunities and their housing. So they're materially struggling, but they're also feeling fundamentally disrespected in a way that may be structural or might be directly interpersonal. Right. And then all too often, in the, the same people who suffer most from that also experience most kind of danger, most risk of risk of unemployment, risk of housing issues, risk of mental health difficulties, or of kind of physical danger. And then also, they're generally the ones who are most um, punitively treated by the state. So they're kind of underprotected, overpoliced as well as having those difficulties. And those four inequalities are tightly interwoven. And I think they're deeply historical, like they're deeply entrenched in this country because of the nature of our colonialism, the nature of our particular form of capitalism, the nature of our politics, yada, 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 yada. And those four things which I've described in fairly abstract terms are there in the daily existence of a lot of people in different kinds of combinations and in different kinds of ways. Even just the resource inequality you walk around Hackney and it's there in front of your eyes from, from whatever position you're in, even if you're aware that you're like you, you're relatively privileged, you can, you can see the, the severe hardship facing a lot of people. And often you can notice kind of other, other difficulties that may go alongside that. And obviously a lot of people now have read the kind of picket and, and, Wilkinson spirit level stuff about how inequality is good for no one. Like everyone loses out. Yeah. Even if it's from that more intangible feeling of malaise or intangible feeling of injustice or intangible feelings that it all goes downstream. Yeah. That affects everyone and, and time. everything just, everything feels more insecure, more kind of transient, more unstable because of the extent to which this injustice and inequality is, is palpable in society. And, and I think that, in different ways affects both the kind of in inverted commas like winners and losers from these different forms of inequality and that's why you see gated communities as well as food banks people desperate to try and hide from all these issues with their wealth and then people who are forced to go to places to get stuff for free which are very basic necessities which our country should be enabling everyone to afford at the it's Thomas Piketty in the, the capital book around uh, uh, capital income ratio over time and how we're kind of back at a kind of 19th century style uh, society whereby it's basically your lot in life is almost entirely dependent on what you inherit um, you know wage growth won't happen to you in a reasonable enough way for you to really fundamentally change your life uh, generally speaking obviously in the margin these things can change and the effects that that has, and I, I think, you know, recently, recently when you look at sort of 
uh, you know, fiscal and, and monetary issues in the United Kingdom and seeing them on the front pages and kind of realizing the sort of dislocation between how those things are articulated to the general public, the impact they have on you, but the lack of knowledge on how those things will directly impact your life. And you're still kind of taught, well, you know, if you just work really hard, yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. all kind of work out. You know, you're just an individual, you know, yeah, yeah. it's, it's you know, it's neoliberalism at its finest. Yeah. And not to get too ideological, I think it's not not pertinent to this point. But I do think, as you said, that sort of, you know, if as long as, as long as, you know, enough people make enough money, it'll all come down. Uh, you know, I think, as you say, when you look around certain areas in Hackney, median house prices in Hackney, et cetera, over the past 10 years, um, I think it's in the 700,000 pounds from a median house, um, two or three bedroom, I can't remember which, you know, seeing those things on a spreadsheet or in a, or in a chart or in a, in a presentation is one thing. The reality of suggesting that to someone who is in a family that's working class and, you know, hasn't maybe, um, uh, you know, ever even, you know, but still wants those things, as you said, those fundamental things, which is a, a good house, a good job, doesn't want to be, you know, a, a lord, uh, you know, but wants to just be a good citizen, you know, contribute to their area, have the the necessities of life and thrive, but thrive within a, a boundary that isn't extraction and manipulation and all the kind of negative externalities that are seemingly baked into this form of capitalism. But I think maybe when we think about it from the, from the do all of those things seem like smoke and mirrors as you said earlier like easy ways to obfuscate the fact that like it's not as complex as we like to make it look it's you know to those people on the ground that we're talking about it's whether it's education whether yeah. it's network as you said you know are there fundamental things which aren't as complex as they need to be which could mean that we do improve the ability for people to flourish in the area i think yeah i think i think everyone's affected by a mixture of both like more simple micro level like interactional problems very palpable things like you get stopped and searched and you're harassed right um that's very palpable that's very it's simple in a way the police need to massively improve their organizational culture um i mean yeah it's, it is simple in a way stop and search needs to needs to fundamentally change in all kinds of different ways that's very palpable very immediate but obviously that simplicity has a has a wider complexity behind it which relates to British colonialism relates to the hitch, specific hist history of the metropolitan police in this country and what it was set up to do and what it's been doing since the again the 19th century and so on and so on. So I think I think there is simple in your face tangible things and then there's larger scale structural things in the background. And I think one of the things that feeds into a sense of frustration a sense of anger is that those for too many people those kind of relatively simple straightforward in your face injustices or harms of some kind they're all too common and, and they, they cumulatively diminish you they cumulatively belittle you um but the 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 bigger scale the deeper the structural stuff is is baffling to everyone mm -hmm. like i like i'm i've had a i'm very fortunate to like i went to a grammar school i went to latimer like this so I did, there was no fee paying, but you have to do an exam to get in. Like there yeah. aren't many grammar schools in London. Eleven plus, right? Yeah, and then I went to a a, a good uni. Like I, I've benefited from a hugely privileged education, and I've got a and I've got a reasonable understanding of some of this stuff that you're talking about. But even for me, it's baffling and confusing and complex, and that's a source of massive frustration because yeah. Yeah, yeah. you see the simple brute reality in front of you, and then you've got a, 
all of us have got a, a kind of glimmer of the of the deeper, more historical macro scale issues. Yeah, but it all feels it all feels beyond you. And I think that the feeling of powerlessness and helplessness is is a, a huge problem because everybody wants to feel reasonably secure, like they know what's going on, like they've got a degree of control over things. And if your housing situation is precarious, if you're struggling with multiple jobs, if you don't know where the next paycheck's going to come from, if your child is really struggling in school and you think it's unfair, but you're not quite sure and you don't exactly know what's going on, everything feels so unstable and ever-changing and you've got you've got no firm grip on on what's going on. And that that's that's a horrible place to be. And that's that's all too common. And I think, yeah, like I say, there's deep historical complex yeah. roots of those things, but there's also very in your face, tangibles, relatively kind of simple, straightforward symptoms. Which I think is perfect because it's there's the, the reality that you, you you know, the ideology is one thing and it's easy to feel, oh, those things answer the broad sweeping question. But as you say, so many of those factors are the the fundamental things which basically mean that you know we can't go beyond a certain point and if we think about it from the perspective of a, a kind of framework of change you know when we we've talked a lot about the problems and also a, a lot of solutions I think has been in there or certainly I think you've done a fair job of not leaning too much into the negative I think you know you've rightly stated the reality for a lot of people and that was the point of this conversation but you've also made sure to talk about specific projects you've done and others um, which are starting to inform change um, in the margin, which could become systemic change. But if we think about the kind of really simple problems and solutions, which I guess you think Quest has done a good job on or, or you think that are kind of coming up where you see the, the biggest opportunity to make impact on a, on a simple level, on a day-to-day -day level, what, what kind of things do you think are uh, offer the most opportunity the most most benefit for society and the people of Hackney I, th I think like, I think the massive structural things do have to be addressed which isn't simple like I'm I'm I'm, I'm kind of allergic to quick fixes um <laughs> because and not in an armchair way like in not you know it's annoying when an academic is sat in an armchair in a fancy office somewhere and it's like well we need revolution and everything else is pointless and it's like pretty convenient for you to say because yeah, you can just carry on chilling. yeah but I, I obviously i'm trying to balance like directly supporting <clears throat> young people on the daily so trying to make those incremental differences where i can and hackney quest is an organization obviously and doing that more generally and 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 then trying to i don't know in some way tackle the bigger structural things um but anyway i like to be more direct like i mean like school system wise we need a lot more inclusion a lot more nurture a lot more care for young people a lot better safeguarding as well as educational excellence i think there is there's a there is a role that everyone can potentially pay, play who's got any spare time in volunteering or kind of skills exchanging with organizations on the ground that are doing good things food banks community organizations of different kinds charities like i've got a preference to smaller more community-based ones but whatever kind and then i think there, there is a, a, a broader awareness of the extent of inequality and injustice in this country. There's good campaigns like um, Enough is Enough happening. There's good, brilliant youth-led campaigning organisations like For, Forefront Project, Take Back the Power, and Hackney Account, more lo locally to us, Reclaim Manchester. And this is kind of young people who are uh, fruitfully intolerant of the nonsense that older generations have left them, essentially in different kinds of ways, campaigning for change. And I think there's different ways that 
we as adults can get behind them, whereas financially chucking them donations or getting involved in what they're doing. Um, so that's a that's another thing. And then for anyone who's in any position to employ someone, just thinking about who you employ and why, and whether that could be broadened out, um, not tokenistically and not without thought, because you have to think about your organizational culture. You have to think about the support that different people need. You have to think about flexibility, all those kind of things. Um, it's better to, you should only do it if you can do it well kind of thing. Um, so I think those are, those are some of the small, some of the simple, some of the more incremental things that can, that can make a difference to some of these much bigger, more structural historical issues we've been talking about. And on the, on the extreme side, as you say, on the more chaotic and complex problems, where do you see the, the biggest amount of opportunity? You said systemic being your more natural wheelhouse, maybe somewhere you tend to find more, more freedom of thought, more opportunity. What what are your kind of areas that you think are? What what do you think the big problems are from a kind of the real top top down stuff or the uh, the systems and the policies? I think it is like it does come down to concentration of wealth, but also power and privilege and prestige in a tiny proportion of people in in the country, and it's got deep historical roots. Like if you if you watch some bloody costume drama from the 19th century and you see all the rich people like gallivanting around and then there's like, you know, one scene in which they go through the slums of London to kind of like gaze with incomprehension and wonder and terror at the paupers. Like you watch that, you're like, that's a deeply unequal society. That's wrong. That will have all kinds of systemic um, symptoms. And in terms of the degree of inequality, all kinds of people, not just um, Thomas Piketty, but even more right, right wing thinkers are pointing out that in terms of the degree of inequality in wealth and the other things that go around it, like life security, like dignity, like sense of status, all of that, that the inequality in this country is completely hideous and has all kinds of symptoms. Like, you, you, it's a big general statement, and you know, I'd, I'd need a you need a lot more analysis to happen. Absolutely, but yeah. things like violence between young people, things like mental health difficulties, all kinds of different issues are not just a product of an individual with a certain kind of brain that operates in a certain kind of manner. Yeah. They're a product of the environment that that individual's grown up in, which in turn is significantly affected by the resources, the recognition, the risk that, that occurs in the community in which they grow up in. Um, so, I mean, what we argue for in the book is basically a raft of policies to address those four interconnected inequalities and something like universal basic income, something as radical as different as that, I think has the potential to at least shift the sense of what is possible for, for people and, and just try to fundamentally address that point about entwined inequality and insecurity, which is the really dangerous thing. If somebody doesn't only feel materially, like they're suffering and like others have immense wealth, but they also feel the deep sense of insecurity in their identity, in their life condition, in what, what they can provide for their family. Like yeah. those two things entwined leave, lead to bad situations, lead to people harming themselves or others in various different kinds of ways, because that's an intolerable situation for human beings to be in. Luke, you shared some incredible stuff. And I feel like, you know, for people who want to continue learning or, or or kind of uh getting knowledge from you where online you know you, you mentioned the book where can people get that where can people find out more about you about quest so hackney quest it's just hackneyquest.org.uk 
Um, we've got a decent website these days. My colleague uh, Lucy, Lucy and the whole team have done some great work because until very recently we had a website that looked like it was from kind of the pre-internet era, if such a <laughs> thing is possible. Um, so yeah, hackneyquest.org.uk or just I think we're just at hackneyquest on Twitter and on uh, Insta. Um, and then I'm just lbilly91 on Twitter. Um, the book's available from Bristol Uni Press um, and Amazon and everywhere else, all the, all the ethical and less ethical sources. Um, but I think if you just Google against youth violence, if you put against youth violence, Billingham, I reckon it will it'll come up. The algorithm will, will punch. It will sort it out, yeah. Luke, pleasure. Thank you, man. Thank you. Likewise. Cheers. Sweet. <laughs>